Right, Ryan? Yeah, so we're seeing... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. He's dying. He's like, this transition. Fuck my Welcome to Oops, I Talk Politics, the left-wing political podcast where we talk about politics. I'm Ryan. I'm Sly. I'm Phil. And I'm Daryl. Here we are. We're back at it again. We made it. Yeah, another, <laughs> another week down, another week to go. I guess two weeks. <laughs> so we're here to talk about money in politics. Ah, that cancerous root. <laughs> yeah, it was a big issue in the 2016 election that you had one candidate, Bernie Sanders, saying like, I will not take super PAC money. And then you had Trump saying, I'm beholden to nobody. And he was just lying about that. He yeah. takes a lot of money. <laughs> but we want to give a little bit of history, a little bit of backstory, and kind of talk about how, like, where we're at now and how we got here. So first thing, even, you can't talk about money in politics without talking about super PACs. Wait, what's even a PAC? And what's a super version of that? <laughs> yeah. So a PAC, a PAC, is a political action committee. And basically, up until 2010, they were, like, groups of, like, either a company or, an like, a group of employees or, like, a union or something that could bond together and donate as a unit to a political campaign. And they were heavily regulated where... Oh, an individual could give up to $2,700 and a pack could give up to $5,000. So like that way, like I could donate to, you know, I could donate $2,700 to some campaign, but I could also have my union give them another like 5,000 or something. And then in 2010, there was a case of the Supreme Court, which you now call Citizens United, where basically, starting in 2004, there was a conservative nonprofit group called Citizens United, and they filed a complaint with the FEC, the Federal Election Committee, where they said that Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 9-11 were, like, they, he was running ads to get people to see this movie, and they said those are political ads trying to stop George W. Bush from getting reelected. So they were saying that if they're allowed to do that, we should be allowed to also make a movie. So they made a movie called Hillary the Movie in 2007. Mm. And it was basically a documentary, and I use the term loosely, about then-candidate Hillary. And they had it ready to air on DirecTV, but the, FCC, the FEC said you couldn't do that because it's a it's a political movie that it's basically a big ad campaign against Hillary. So they took it all the way to the Supreme court. And in 2010, the decision came in that money is basically free speech and PACs can't have caps of money. So I could now donate hundreds of thousands of dollars to a pack. And when PACs get to that size, we call them super PACs and super PACs follow slightly different rules because now they have no limitations whatsoever. But the rule is that they can't be run by the campaign. So, like, I can donate a bunch of money to, let's say, like, Trump's super PAC, but it's not Trump choosing the ads. It's somebody else. It's and, Don like, Jr. <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. Like, that's what they kind of do all the time where it's like so Romney's in 2012, Romney's super PAC was run by a... Romney was run by former Romney political director, Cole Forty, mm -hmm. and Obama's was run by 
the deputy press secretary, Bill Burton. <laughs> so they are still, they're, they're technically not run by them, but like they are. And they do cute stuff to try to get around that like small limitation. Like if you watch like Mitch McConnell's website or uh, different political uh, people's uh, websites, uh, you'll see they have videos of them just just random shots of them just smiling, looking happy, waving baby, uh, waving hands, waving, waving hands and shaking babies. No, <laughs> yeah. shaking people's hands, you know, holding babies and stuff like that. It's like it's like raw footage. There's no narration or anything. The whole point yeah. is that people will take that footage and make it into a campaign ad. Like it's like that the Ted Cruz ten hour video of him. So in yeah. 2016, what Phil's talking about is there was a Ted Cruz like footage dump where he dumped like a hundred hours or something on like youtube uh, yeah, yeah. On, like youtube or something that was just like public footage that you can use of just ted cruz doing things in case you want to anyone out there yeah, yeah. and when you watch it it's like i remember the daily show did like a supercut, and there was like 10 minutes of him yelling at his children to act more human and like really weird <laughs> stuff yeah i like i like the idea that he needs to yell at his children to act more human <laughs> and like also his mom had been like hey mom talk about talk about dad and she's like i'd really rather not And he's like you have to it's for the ads <laughs> and she'd be like i'm really uncomfortable teddy and he's like this is what we need to do to be president mom <laughs> So ideally that the super PAC would then cut that stuff out. Yeah. But the one, example <laughs> <Ideally>. that, <laughs> the one example that I want to give that it's really silly, but it's the, it's the thing that first brought super PACs to my attention, which was when Stilvin, Stephen Colbert founded one. Yep. That, he that founded was so his, good. <laughs> he founded a super PAC called Americans for a better tomorrow, tomorrow, where he wanted to run for president of South Carolina and he wasn't allowed to run it because he was technically trying to run for president. So he gave it to Jon Stewart, and Jon Stewart named it the Definitely Not Coordinating with Stephen Colbert <laughs> Super PAC. And he basically what they would do is they would check in at the end of every episode of The Daily Show where Stephen Colbert wouldn't tell him what to do, but they would bring up the fact that, like, Jon Stewart hired some of their writers to work on the Super PAC, who are also Stephen Colbert's writers. And like, so, but it's technically not him telling them what to do, mm -hmm. but he would just say on his show, like, I hope someone runs an ad of me doing this thing. And then like Jon Stewart would make that ad. Yeah. And so it's just one of, it's one of those things that's so obviously shady, but the Supreme Court said you could do it, so whatever. And by the way, in that, in that ruling, the Supreme Court not only said that this is not corruption, they said it doesn't even give the appearance of corruption. Like, why would you even think this is corrupt? This is that's stupid. Don't be an idiot. It's because yeah. the, the argument is that that the same way me saying I, if I went outside and my company said I support Donald Trump, I should be able to do that the same way I can donate to Donald Trump because it's like money is speech. Yeah, that's that's why you can use money to buy pro prostitutes. Oh wait, you can't because money has different <laughs> connotations than fucking talking to somebody and and when you buy some when you buy something's different than uh, petitioning somebody through actual human speech. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I agree. <laughs> and in according to OpenSecrets.org, the Center for Responsive Politics, the total spent by super PACs in 2016 on elections was over a billion dollars. So this is not no money. This is like a lot of money. And yeah. to compare it, the a, a billion dollars is more than Trump raised his entire campaign. We're talking like super PACs and PACs raise a lot of money. Yep. So... Has money in politics always been a big deal, or is this no? A this new is the thing? first time. <laughs> Obviously, this has always been a thing, and it's like one of those things that I, I think people often get the idea that this is like oh, just my generation. Now all of a sudden, the world's corrupt, and powers that be support certain candidates that would help them, which is like 
ain't like the most ancient thing ever like like noble houses supporting patricians in rome who would run for senate like this stuff is like there's no reason to think that there would not be that that people with a certain vested interest would band together and support someone who supports their interests right yeah and this goes for individuals it also goes for groups some of the big groups that are donating to candidates are also uh, like lobbying groups for certain industries. Some of them are even like consumer things like, oh, car, not really anymore, but like car safety group is like, we want to support candidates who will push for seatbelts and cars. And then they band together and they get money and they donate to candidates. I was, I was actually reading a little bit though that it wasn't as big a problem in the early days of America, which is why like none of our constitution really accounted yeah. for it. Yep. And I, I, it's probably because we're the only people that could have a say in government at all were white rich white landowning men so they already got the interest like yeah it's kind of it's kind of yes it's not there because it's kind of implied already that yes there is an upper class that is the people being elected anyway and they're the ones all sitting around arguing in the senate anyway yeah and like one thing I just want to point out is yeah. a pack or a super pack isn't inherently like moral or immoral because like End Citizens United, the big group trying to stop like unlimited power for super packs, is a pack. Like yeah. it's it's more like what limitations we put on it. It's not like lobbying is always just like big pharma lobbying and like you know like big oil lobbying. Like there are people that lobby for you know gun control and things that we would support. Packs are just like another any kind of weapon or tool. If you unilaterally disarm completely and have no packs, uh, you would just get run over by that actual packs. So like there are packs for good causes because it has to be just to yeah. make sure make sure issues are represented. Yeah, but yeah. when you look at where the huge huge money comes from, usually I would consider them immoral places or agendas. Yeah. Yeah, and what's interesting is besides even just saying like, oh, how long has it been going? Before I even get to that, does the money matter? Yes, I'm going to say, because... Uh, <laughs> really? In, in, what a in twist. The, in the studies that are done, because, well, you might... You, someone might say, um, yes, this candidate might have more ads, more money, but in the, at the end of the day, you vote for who you agree with. But in, especially in when it comes to um, congressional races, it yep. seems like there is a very huge correlation between the candidate who spends more wins more. So it seems like um, in the 2012 election, candidates who raised more money than their opponents won nine times more than their opponents. Wow. And the winning candidates won or spent about $20 for every $1 the loser spent. And on average, your average congressional candidate uh, spent over $2 million, um, which is a lot of fucking money because we're talking about these are not, this is not for president. This is like local people. Hmm. Yeah. And it's like, it's not 100% like each dollar guarantees you X amount of votes because a lot of times what happens is the people winning are the ones who already had the established money yeah. because they're the incumbent. Yeah. So it's like, it's not, per- this isn't a perfect, like, you're nine, for each dollar, you're nine, nine times more likely to win. Well, what happens there is uh, the person more likely to win also starts getting more money. So the people yes. who donate them get a say yeah. in the person exactly. who's more to win. Exactly. So when, yeah, when this guy seems like he's going to win, the money flows to him to, to try to secure the victory. But it's... It's still a pretty big problem, I think, that uh, money, you, you really have to be beholden to people to get the money to run. And this, some people um, blame this on Andrew Jackson's campaign because he was one of the first presidents to actually like have a, a real campaign campaign. Yeah. Largely because he got, 
he felt like he got shafted in the 1824 election. He, he did. I mean, he, he did, did get he, shafted, yeah. He did get shafted. Yeah. So he got really butthurt about this because he, he had a plurality of votes. So he had the most votes, but not 50%. Same thing with the electoral votes. He didn't get, more, he didn't get half because there were four candidates running. And essentially, not to get too much into it, but uh, the guy who won second ended up becoming president because of some dealings with the third place candidate, Henry Clay. Anyway, he gets shafted, gets really butthurt about it. Then in he really ramps up his campaign for the his next run. And when he is running, he gets a lot of support from people who he then puts in positions of power as soon as he wins. Um, you guys probably, if you've taken U.S. history, learned about like the spoil system. To the victor yeah. goes the spoils. Yeah, the idea is you guys helped me get elected, and thus you shall be rewarded posts in the government somewhere. Good thing we don't do that anymore. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> also, like, as, as, Andrew Jackson, by the way, is one, is one of the worst presidents. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, just fuck him. I, I will agree with that. Yeah. So that kind of became, like, the standard after that. Like, yeah, of course, you get the support of the powers that be in becoming president, and then once you become president, you give them rewards. And this... This didn't go away and is part of the reason like again if you've studied u.s history and learned about like the progressive era a lot of the big pushes were against monopolists controlling the government because the big trusts like rockefeller and carnegie basically could just make the decisions then because they could give all the money to the candidates who would then give them support and etc you know it's interesting i don't know if you uh read up on this but i just found this out while reading uh for myself apparently around this, around this time about when the progressive movement started coming up, you know, and Teddy Roosevelt uh, started trust busting and shit. Yeah. Uh, around the time, people actually buy votes. Like, pu- votes were actually public things. Yeah. And you ha- and you say, like, okay, I voted for this guy, give me a, give me a check. And, like, people actually buy, like, which people actually buy votes for the candidate that way. What they would do often is, like, they would try to, in, this was more of a local thing than a presidential thing, but in, like, big cities, the the corrupt government or groups involved would, like, literally get immigrants off the boat and be like, I'll give you 50 bucks. Welcome to New York. Here's the candidate you're supposed to vote for. Oh my God, and, Trump was right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and literally, like, immigrants, like, New York was run for a long time by these, like, political machines that would just take the influx of immigrants that didn't even speak English, pay them to vote for who they wanted. These guys are getting off the boat. They're like, whatever. Here's money for my family. I'm going to vote for this guy. And, yeah, you, that, that happened. And the progressive era pushed back against that a lot. Um, like you, like Sly said, Teddy Roosevelt tried to break up the trust. He did break up the trust. Banned uh, corporate ca- uh, campaign contributions. Yeah. Things like that. And that started to change later. Uh, the 40s start, saw the birth of um, PACs. And then there were some big cases in the 70s that I think Sly wanted to talk about that really changed the game. So one thing I just want to add to the stuff before that is, interestingly enough, like during the 40s and 50s, uh, it was actually the liberal position to be for money in politics, because back that's when unions really strong, and mm. like a lot, a lot of the stuff going, a lot of the laws being passed to go against uh, corporations, eventually started passing laws to go against uh, union uh, money in politics, like Taft Hartley in 1947. Yeah, uh, and like that was like a liberal position. Like this is money, money in politics is a speech, and that it's kind of it's, it's like like just like gun control. It's interesting how things flip when uh, people benefit from them. And yeah. and it's also because we can't draw perfect distinctions between like yeah. liberal and conservative of today to the past. Yeah. But like a lot of people who might listen to us are like, oh yeah, um, like government should be involved in things. I support things. Hamilton was awesome, all that stuff. But like those were the people who supported big banks, who supported, who pushed for money in politics. Even yeah. b- way back at the beginning, like the banks had a lot of influence over p- uh, political candidates, 
And, and that's why uh, Andrew Jackson was popular because he was against the uh, National Bank and stuff. Yeah, he yeah. got rid of the regulated National Bank. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, in 1971, like uh, Phil alluded to, that's when the big shift in politics happened. Uh, Citizen United was obviously a big event, but th- this is when the modern day problem of mo- uh, money politics really became a thing. Uh, 1971, uh, Lewis Powell, who was a corporate Virginia lawyer and member member of 11 corporations, uh, he wrote a member to his friend uh, Eugene Sinor, who was the U.S. Uh, ch- Chamber of Commerce director. The memo was basically a call to arms for businesses to combat against leftists in government, like Ralph Nader at the time. He, he was passing all these laws, uh, you know, give us fucking uh, APA and uh, seatbelts in our cars and stuff like that. And the Great Society was a thing too, like the Great Society increased environmental safety regulations, occupational safety, and consumer protection. Yeah, the Great Society was LBJ's effort to like eliminate poverty in America. Yeah, war on poverty uh, was part of it. And because of like uh, all these liberal hippie socialists ruling this country, like Nader (laughs) and um, LBJ, Powell felt like businesses under attack. And until this this point, businesses were like an individual thing. Like if you were a train owner, you would lobby for your train industry. And uh, for your own interests. And usually it was just for tax breaks, for minor stuff. It was never uh, to the extent it was today. But the, the memo said, no, we have to. We have, we have all this power because of all our money. Uh, we have to start basically waging class warfare on the lower classes to make sure we keep our power, basically. I'm, I'm, using, my, I'm using my interpretation of it, but basically they felt that they were being attacked by everyone else, by the socialists and stuff. And they, now businesses have to start taking it as a unit. Yeah. And not worry about any other... Not worry about different infighting basically say like if it's bad for business it's bad for us we're gonna go against it we're gonna make sure everyone in government in these positions are going to be good for business it's if you look at the history of like the 20th century and like you can see like a a, a pe- kind of like a pendulum between labor and business like labor yeah. and employer like and you know you have the the early progressive like what spawned the progressive era is the the trust dominating everything but then it swung back the other way where like businesses were pretty limited in power compared to unions and unions and, were uh, a long time were corrupt. Like, yeah, uh, what's yeah. the name? Johnny Hoffa, like one of the most yeah. famous. Jimmy Hoffa. Jimmy Hoffa. Jimmy Hoffa. He's one of the most famous ones. He's a corrupt motherfucker. Like, yeah, uh, like unions did. Like, just like any position of power, if it's, if, if you get too much power, people become pieces piece of shit. Because yeah, it's people, why we're all in favor of regulation all the time. <laughs> yeah, you, you can say basically because of in this memo, you can see the blueprints for the modern conservative landscape. Uh, what I like to call like corporate uh, corporate welfare. These these people who are. These economists and uh, teachers and stuff who are mediocre minds or mediocre pundits on TV, because they support the rich people's positions, uh, they are what the rich people will, will fund to keep, keep make sure their voices in the public. So they're saying we need to make sure we're in, we're in the schools. We have money over uh, donations and stuff. We need to use that influence to get pro business people in the schools. We need people with both positions in, uh, in the media. This fucking liberal media. We gotta make sure we use our money to make sure uh, and advertising money to make sure we get uh, corporate people in the media. And the most important one, in my opinion, was the uh, courts. Because he said, we have, uh, look what the civil rights activists, look what the liberal activist judges have accomplished through the court system. If we could do that, we'd basically be unstoppable. That's that's the Mitch McConnell approach. Yes. And Nixon saw his memo and was like, that's a good point, Lewis Powell. Uh, two months later, I made him a Supreme Court justice. So. <laughs> Great job, Nixon, you piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> and just some of the uh, ramifications, immediate ramifications was... Chamber of Commerce that he was a part of, Powell was a part of, it doubled membership between 1974 and 1980, the budget tripled, it created the Heritage Foundation, the Manhattan Institute, the Cato Institute, and Citizens for a Sound Economy stemmed from this, this memo. The Heritage Foundation's like the big Tea Party one, right? Yeah. Cato yeah. Institute's also similar to them. 
Yeah. Hmm. Uh, 1971, only 175 firms had registered lobbyists in Washington, but by 1982, nearly 2,500 did. Number of corporate PACs increased from under 300 in 1976 to over 1,200 by the middle of 1980. Wow, that's a big jump. Yeah, well, yeah. also, what I was saying before, I'm like, money's always been in politics. It, it, it really is worth noting, like, how much more spending. Like, if you look at, yeah. you can, anyone can just look at how much presidents have spent on their elections over time. And it's, like, around, like, the 2000s, like, 2000 and on is, like, so crazy how much is being spent compared yeah. to any election before that and that's with when you account for inflation too like the the amount that presidential candidates spend has like exponentially increased what do you think caused that jump i don't know i just want to point out this one little uh, cute fact uh the first person to create the, the modern uh system of campaigning he was a ohio industrialist mark Hanna. uh of the, he became chairman of the rnc he basically created the modern system where you have buttons billboards posters and all that shit and it's funny because uh, he was uh, it was McK- uh, Mc- William McKinley versus populist Democrat William Jennings Bryan, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, industrialists were so against the populists that they all started doing so much to uh, Mark Hanna's uh, fund that Mark Hanna actually started giving money back, saying, "Stop it! Like you're giving too much. Like this is getting ridiculous. <laughs> like imagine that today. Like that's just fucking idea is hilarious. That back yeah, then- like a politician being like, "Hey, knock it off. Yeah, this like- is like I I can't spend this fast. I could see." the shift in like the Democrats, like neoliberalism raising more as like a race to buy candidates from both sides kind of thing. Yeah. That's, that's where I'm, uh, I'm going to lead into the fun fact. Uh, the wizard of Oz is about William Jennings, Bryan. Oh, it is. Oh yeah. Yeah. Something with the gold. Cause he wanted to get off the gold standard and the gold yellow brick road. Or, I don't know. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Look it up. I don't know. That's, that'll be its own episode. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that, but this was just uh, the memo was just the start of um, Lewis Powell's big influence. The big influence was the case he, he ruled on a few years later in 1974, Buckley v. Vallejo, because the Federal Election Campaign Act in 1971, uh, uh, the first initial one just required broad discor- uh, disclosure of campaign finance, but then they amended it in 1974 because of the Watergate scandal and fear of politics to limit contributions for candidates for popular office. Require more disclosure for contributions, uh, and provide public financing for presidential elections, and limited expenditure for candidates. So we used to have public financing for presidential elections until this court case, Buckley v. Vallejo, that uh, Lewis Powell uh, ruled on. And they said, no, money is speech. And and people viewed Buckley v. Vallejo as like a good compromise. Like, uh, you centrists should love this. Milton is a shit centrist because it's supposed <laughs> to be like... Because the fear was, uh, liberals feared that campaign finance undermined democracy and conservatives thought free speech was more important. But uh, mm-hmm. Buckley uh, Vivaleo held that legislators could regulate contributions to candidates and parties, but not limit political spending in general. And they did not address corporations. And mm. most spending today is done by individuals, not parties. Yeah, yeah. it's it's interesting because I think a lot of times uh, super PACs like Ryan brought up earlier are the thing that get brought up most. But yeah. Um, if you do look at the top donors for uh, the numbers I had seen were for still 2012, like Romney versus Obama, you look yeah. at the top spenders to, for the two of them, and it's always just like fucking millionaires, like just dumping tons of money. Uh, and on one side, you have like the media billionaires always dump for the Democrat candidate. Yeah. And then the other billionaires dump for the Republican candidate, like Sheldon Adelson. No one fucking knows who that is, but he, yeah. he runs casinos and he's the biggest donor every goddamn election. Like, like, ni- like, like 92 million in 2012. Yeah, only last year only ten percent of all political spending came from corporate and unions. Everything else was individual spending. So it's 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 corporate is, is bad, but it's not the big problem. It's the rich motherfuckers who have all this money to spend on their uh, people of choice. Yeah, and uh, campaign uh, sp- expenditures were getting more expensive around Buckley v. Vallejo. 
because that's when it was shifting towards TV. And so businesses already had advantage. And now this gave them even more advantages because corporations, because now we're like the only ones that could spend unlimitedly besides individuals. And uh, they could even, because gra- grassroots movements were the big thing back then, but they were losing ground because of uh, the rise of TV. And now corporations had TV and they could re- replicate grassroots movements. So they, they, that's why you, you, part of the reasons why the big uh, hippie dippy shift of the 60s started fading away as the 70s rolled around because of, uh, of the uh, money being more important to campaign. And they started funding both Democrats and Republicans. This is what Ryan was uh, alluding to. Mm-hmm. Because uh, fu- not, not only because I uh, gave you more of a saying Democrats, but funny Democ- Democrats gave corporations leverage to pry Democrats away from organized labor because labor was not growing as fast as corporate money in politics. Uh, in 1980, unions accounted for less than a quarter of all PAC con- contributions, down from half six years six years later. So, like in six years, they a quarter uh, injection to this pool was down by a quarter, and uh, nearly half of all incumbents and senators' funds came from labor packs in the mid-1970s, and a decade later, the share was below one-fifth. And so, this, the decrease in labor was successful now. So now, by the 80s, uh, corporations were like, okay, so now labor is much less our enemy, so now we can use our, our uh, political influence now to make Democrats be even more beholden to our interests. So in 1978 through the September, nearly half of corporate contributions went to Dems, but then in the weeks before the 1978 election, only 29% uh, went to the Democrats. And this created a new era of campaign finance. Not only were corporate contributions going to grow bigger, Democrats had to work harder to get them. Not only did the Democrats have to hold power and say they're for uh, corporations and business, they had to express it with strong legislation, even like even more so the Republicans. And that's one part of the reason why in many elections, like even 2016, the Democrats were the pro-corporate party more so than the Republicans on, on their platform at least. Mm. Even though Trump is obviously a corrupt motherfucker, so you're saying both sides are just as bad because that's what I'm hearing. <laughs> no, but <laughs> but if you're wondering where the shift from Democrats from labor and union people people yeah, have yeah. this big mystery, I, I it's not a mystery. It's well, it's just to compare the numbers, the the numbers I gave before for like the billion dollars was just super PACs. If we open yeah. it to all PACs in 1986, we spent 400. Well, not we, but PACs. We did. Four, uh, me, um, Phil, Ryan, <laughs> yeah. and I. Also. In 1986, before we were all born. PACs spent $450 million, but in 2016, if you consider all PACs, it's over $2 billion. Yeah. And for the twenty for the 2018 elections, as of February 18th, they've already raised $1.2 billion. Wow. wow. Yeah. So, like, shit. That's a lot. 2020 is going to be crazy. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, so my, my main point of bringing this all up is an article uh, from The Atlantic. If Susie United Falls with progressive even notice... And it mentions what I mentioned before, that most contributions come from individuals. Uh, mo- the constitutional protections for super PACs, it hinges not on Citizens United. It hinges on speechnow.org versus the Federal Election Commission, mm-hmm. which cites Buckley v. Vallejo. Now it, says, it mentions Citizens United, but it's, but the, its precedent is based on Buckley v. Vallejo. And also, by the way, both sides versus bad, again, Merrick Garland was part of that uh, circuit court, and he voted unit- part of this unanimous decision. So... And that's another yeah. thing. Our current Supreme Court is the most pro-corporate in U.S. history, mm-hmm. and not just because of Republicans. Democrats are pretty corporate too. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's an important point because you know the Supreme Court often f- shifts between judicial restraint, where they're like, it's not really our place to rule on things unless it's really on, in the Constitution, versus yeah. uh, judicial activism, which is like the Marshall Court going on and saying like we have to enforce like civil rights legislation, like let's take cases to to desegregate schools and things like that. But it rarely is so pro-corporate ever. Yeah. Like, like 
really both Republicans and the Democrats on there are just like, corporations are people and they... My friend. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And they deserve rights and to do whatever they want. Well, in Mm -hmm. 2014, after the 2010 Citizens United case, there was another case, McCutcheon v. FEC, which is what removed the caps. So, like, they said super PACs can give any amount, and then that's the case in 2014 that said, well, you can give any amount to PACs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of just like, now it's it's stupid garbage nonsense. Yeah. We're used to have caps giving to them, and then it's like, oh, this is fine, right? Because they're not associated. Yeah. It's not flagrant corruption. It's like the peers of corruption, so... <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Come on. Even if we get rid of Citizens United, which won't you support, Buckley v. Vallejo is still a problem. But there is some hope because corporate money is not necessarily the only solution to campaigning. Right, Ryan? We're seeing a shift, especially in the Democratic Party, after Hillary lost. I don't know if you guys heard, but uh, she didn't what? win. What? What? <laughs> one of the things that happened is, like, Phil said that you're nine times more likely to win if you have more money, but it's not a done deal. Yeah. So, like, Hillary w- got $204 million from Super PACs, where Trump only got 79 And Hillary raised about $500 million more than Trump did, but she still lost. So we are seeing a shift as more and more senators, especially on the left, want to deviate themselves from Hillary's like super pro corporate policies and positions, because I think they're realizing that just the money at this point isn't enough to win over like the waves of populists, both conservatives and liberals. So we now have five Democratic senators who have said they're no longer going to take any PAC money. And that's Bernie Sanders, who's technically an independent, I know, but whatever. Elizabeth Warren, Maria Cantwell from Washington, and most recently, Cory Booker from Jersey and Kirsten Gillibrand from New York. From Jersey. Yeah, from Jersey. They both said that they are going to, they are going to no longer take PAC money. And that's important to note because like Kirsten Gillibrand, who is considered by many to be a front runner for the 2020 Democrats to run. She gets, she got $35,000 from PACs from Pfizer, the pharmaceutical company, 30,000 from Goldman Sachs and, you know, 20,000 from Citigroup and Cory Booker got same thing, 28,000 from Connell Foley LLP and another 21,000 from Pfizer. So if you're running on like, let's say a single payer system, like Kirsten Gillibrand co-signed, maybe don't take all your money from Pfizer and things like that. (laughs) So we're seeing uh, that kind of shift. And we also have house members like Beta O'Rourke from Texas, John Sarbanes from Maryland, uh, Pramila Jayapal from Washington, Ro Khanna from California, Tulsi Gabbard from Hawaii, Jared Polis from Colorado, and even Francis Rooney, a Republican from Florida. The only Republican I could find who said they wouldn't take PAC money. Wow. <laughs> yeah. He's a rhino. <laughs> I, you know, I, I want to be, I want to be optimistic with you. And I, and I understand like, you know, you can look at the Trump story and say there is a populist surge can overcome the spending. But mm-hmm. if you if you look at presidential elections in 2012, which, you know, Romney was portrayed as like the billionaire asshole and Obama's the nice casual guy. But like Obama outspent Romney like a lot. Yeah. And he outspent McCain in 2008 by like three to one. Oh. And like that probably had something to do with it. And Bush outspent Kerry. Uh, he outspent Gore. Clinton outspent fucking Bob Dole. Uh, another thing to know on top of Phil's issue is that presidential elections... Uh, have a m- much more increased in part- participation and a much more free media flowing around there. So, uh, like, mm-hmm. it's a question of how much you can influence 2018, but I think 2020 is a decent chance, as, influ- as evidenced by 2016 with Trump versus Clinton. 
Mm-hmm. And yeah. another thing that I do want to point out, too, is the Republican who raised the most from Super PACs, aside f- uh, even more than Trump, was Jeb. And the Koch brothers backed uh, Scott Walker at the beginning. Yeah. So, and another thing that I think is important to note is if we look at small money donors to show, like, we talk about, like, the grassroots movement, 16% of Clinton's campaign came from donations of $200 or less, but 32% of Obama's came from smaller donations, mm-hmm. and 26% were Trump's, so Trump had 10% more small donations than Clinton, and Romney had 5% small donations. Yeah. So, like, I do think that there, where the money comes from does play a part in it, mm-hmm. and one other thing that I want to point out is... There are three senators, Joe Manchin, uh, the Democrat from West Virginia, Claire McCaskill, the the Democrat from Missouri, and Ted Cruz from Texas, and Dianne Feinstein from California, are all facing challengers who have refused to take corporate PAC money. And Cruz's guy running against him, Beto O'Rourke from the House, he said, I'll take no PAC money. And he has, last quarter, he outraised Cruz. Yeah. So, you know, it is still possible with a strong grassroots to raise more money even without PACs. I'm not saying it's easy. Question, though, is, since we've already established PACs aren't the biggest spenders, isn't it still fucked up that you have to raise so much money to win? Yeah, Yeah. but to say that you have to raise money from corporate PACs, I don't think that's... I think that's shifting. It is fucked up that, like, we have to give a shit. You have to raise the money from somewhere, but... Yeah, it doesn't have to be from corporations. And also, I, I should I should mention this because some people might be listening and being like, "Oh, I'm a milk toast. I love milk toastism and centrism," and yes. it might be like, "Everyone says that. I, I love milk toastism. Yeah. <laughs> mm, <laughs> this toast is so milky." There's some people that are like, "I don't see probably like, I don't see a big problem with corporations having so much influence. That's oh, that's democracy." Uh, I just want to mention that in uh, a few years back, Princeton Northwestern uh, University had a study called "Testing Tears of American Politics: Elites, Interest Groups, and Average Citizens." It collected policy data between 1981 and 2002 and uh, basically determined that public opinion had basically no influence on public policy between that time, while money, if there was money interests, money interests had a direct correlation to p- policy making. So if you think, oh, that's good, that the entire country can be ignored and like uh, 1% of 1% can be uh, can have complete control over the government for, for like tw- 20 years. And I think that's a, that's a good system we have here. That's a democracy. Yeah, uh, fuck off. You're an idiot. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, and that's part of the reason, like we were saying before, how, yes, so in the in the, in the the Congress, the higher spending candidate wins nine times more. But what actually happens at most in most uh, districts in the country is it's not actually yeah. a close race for most districts. If you're a, if you're a Democrat in fucking, you know, uh, Queens, New York, you're going to win. And so what happens is all the people who want to get shit, want you to do shit for them are just going to give you money yeah. so that you, when you are in office will get your money again next election it ends up being like they're they're just trying to give you money so you'll do what they want it's bribery like, at that point it is. It, it's mm-hmm. legalized bribery we just call it something else yeah but one thing i do want to point out is i do feel like public opinion is shifting on this because even though trump was full of shit and a liar about it a lot of his base voted for him because they said oh he's drained the swamp yeah Yeah, he's and not only that but i mean you're totally right daryl but also like he's funding his own campaign like i had people argue with me like he's he's not beholden to anybody he's funding his own campaign yeah yeah like i even heard that argument i heard that like he's not beholden to corporate powers because he is corporate no but even even the fact that they said he's He's his own corporation. He can fund his own stuff. He didn't fund his own stuff. Yeah. I know. Like, well, yeah, that's the, he's a lie. He's a lie. That's the thing. He was a false populist. <laughs> but what I'm saying is for him to win, he ran on yeah. a populist agenda that 
like you used to just be like that's the way it is politicians just take money from corporations but now at least they're lying about it to trick people into thinking they're not and also uh, whenever they pull people they usually uh, i don't have any statistics on me but uh, generally whenever they pull people people believe that money corporate money has so much influence in politics and stuff like that even republicans mm-hmm. and it depends especially believe that uh corporate and big money have too much influence on politics the irony, be, the, the irony being, it doesn't really matter what they think because because corporates and uh, people in, in large contributions have too much money in politics, so the politicians are not going to listen to them on that front. But uh, Beto O'Rourke, when he's running against Ted Cruz, he saw a huge spike in his in his campaign fundraising, like all his donations, because he did a recent telephone poll and they asked people, "Did you, would you be more likely to support him if you knew he didn't take PAC money? And then a bunch of people gave him a bunch of money and that's when he started out raising Cruz. Just, yeah. just to support Sly, um, from a 2015 poll done by New York Times CBS News, 84% believe money has too much influence yeah, in politics. Exactly. And that, that was 2015. <laughs> Yeah, And when you have all the Democrats who want to run, who say they're going to run, or like, nobody says they're going to run yet, but like, all the prospects, like Gillibrand, Booker, mm-hmm. Warren, Bernie, like all the people that are like the names we toss around for who should run in 2020, all of them are saying we're not taking PAC money. Yeah, and I, and I do think like, it won't actually lower their chances of winning because yeah. people who are voting yeah. for them are not like, oh, I just saw an ad. I mean, maybe some of them are, but... Like ads and shit usually affect uh, like like if you're talking about people, the, the margins for victory in elections are so small. It usually affects like a small number of people. A lot of people usually make yeah. up their minds beforehand. The question mm-hmm. is like, can you scrape off enough margin, or, or more importantly, what I think is, can you get enough people that don't usually vote to vote? Yeah, yeah. that is really it. Can you get enough milk toast pieces of shit? <laughs> it's also not accepting that money is just a great way to proselytize to get other people like young people like us to proselytize the message of that we're there's going to be a big change in politics and so we spread it through somewhere like social media so just by doing this kind of helps them just by virtue of it yeah and even if it is like just because some democratic st- strategist told them that or something I think that's still showing that the pulse of the nation is changing, mm-hmm. that people want to see senators not take PAC money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, like, I think that that is important, and I think that that's hopeful. Mm-hmm. I agree. Now we just have to win. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now we yep. just have to cry. It's what it's all about. Uh, crying that's and winning. It's all about. <sighs> so, Daryl, did you have a specific or lobby you wanted to talk about so i was doing before we started this episode i was doing some research on the nra and its lobbying capacity and where it spends its money because i was really interested in this because it's like you hear time and time again it's like the nra is the thing stopping all gun legislation from being passed they they have a stranglehold on congress like nothing gets through as long as they're still standing and contributing money and one of the surprising things i've been researching is that the nra for anyone that doesn't know isn't in like a the top 10 lobbying sectors according to open secrets they're not in the top 10 lobbying firms lobbying sectors lobbying issues or lobbying industries and the money that they contribute for lobbying it's about like three million a year and just this last year it bumped up to 5.1 million so they've been lobbying more the health industries and defense and even education still spend more to lobby than the nra does and what they do instead is they actually spend a lot of money just on attack ads. Mm-hmm. And like um, for Trump alone, they spent like about $30 million to support him. And like the amount of ads they used to attack Hillary was twice as much as the, the ones they used to support Trump. So mm-hmm. is it more like 
it's not that we'll support you, but if you don't support us, we'll ruin you kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, nice campaign there. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. Yeah, yeah. Which they've actually, they've done to, like, um, at, at least two other people that I remember hearing about. That As soon as they proposed, like, doing any kind of, like, gun control measures, that's when the, the NRA starts, to like, being, like, you know, how easy it is to be, to correlate gun restriction with abolishing the second amendment for some people yeah like a lot of people say it's like the republican dog whistle where it's like any kind of gun and control together means that they're going to take away your weapons also we should mention that uh, the nra represents gun manufacturers as well uh, which is part of the reason why they're so uh, against regulation because uh, they don't want anything to come to their sales and also whenever they do run attack ads making people afraid that democrats are going to win uh, their sales go goes up when Democrats every do win. Every time. Yep. Mm-hmm. Every shooting has an increase in gun sales because yeah. every shooting has the gun control talk after. Yeah. And then you have the NRA talking points. Yeah, people panic. And they're like, yeah, you better get your guns now because soon the police are going to be kicking down your door and stealing all your guns. So mm-hmm. be prepared to shoot the cops, I guess. So it's interesting because uh, uh, the NRA is such a specific case because... Like Ryan, like Dara pointed out, that it's not like a huge lobby. It's it's not in the top ten or anything. A big thing that I want to point out that kind of like strengthens about why the NRA does seem to have such like um such a presence in yeah. the American legislative system is because like Bloomberg's Everytown, which is uh, a gun control lobbying firm, uh, the NRA outspends them ten to one. So there was there was no equivalent on the opposite side for people lobbying for gun control oh, to compete okay. against the NRA regarding just how much they spend. So they might not be the biggest lobby for like around, but yeah. they're the biggest gun lobby. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Okay, that yeah. makes sense. That makes yeah, sense. like it, it, they they outmatch every other gun control lobby combined. Yeah. Okay. And that's an interesting thing because it shows, it's like you have a nice microcosm, of my opinion, of why lobbying is such a fucking cancerous thing in general. Because if your industry and your career is built on a specific thing being fully legal and unregulated, you're going to want to campaign for that more than anyone trying to campaign against it because they're doing it out of public interest and self sacrifice while you're doing it just to keep your business prosperous. Like you're going to have more resources to donate towards that cause. And you can yeah. have more vested You're interest. Put everything in into it. Yeah. yeah, and it's also a lot easier to make it such a binary issue, like yeah. especially when you cater to everyone's fears. Like, we can send a whole message about like universal background checks and like you know all sorts of different specific policies we want, but the NRA just has to say they're taking away your guns. Mm-hmm. Like they could strip the argument down to the simplest, Wait, most you, binary choice. Are you telling me that fear motivates people to vote for <laughs> things? <laughs> But but it's interesting because it does this does apply to other areas I believe because tax cuts are a good example because in order to be for more taxes you have to be like okay I'm going to pay more in order to yeah. Uh, yeah. make make our society better while to what not to not want taxes you just say I want to keep more of my money so your best mm-hmm. interest yeah. and your money will be going to make it's so difficult to convince people it's like if you pay more money it's it pr- provides services that help everyone overall yeah, in the abstract yourself, but in yeah. the future too where it's like hey yeah. like this tax cut i get like a dollar more now um in my pay raise yeah. for my business so guys we got a update from the tax episode we did i my paychecks are lower than they were before <laughs> <laughs> like i 
I it's it's probably I think because my health insurance went up, but like <laughs> I am making less money than I was when we made that episode, and it's making me pretty sad. Uh, <laughs> I'm filing my taxes the day before this episode comes out, so maybe I'll give an update next week. <laughs> I I was at least like this sucks, but maybe I'll at least have some extra money this year. No. Oh uh, yeah. Oh yeah. By the way, uh, New Yorkers and like students make, paying back loans we're like we're more likely to get a tax increase. Just uh, mm-hmm. yep. Yeah. And uh and like this idea that. We lose more in the long run. That applies to healthcare, for example, because like, like Phil oh, mentioned, yeah. because uh, if we had a public single payer, we would all get better service because we're all paying to one single payer. You'll handle all the billing and stuff like that. Like we already pay more than most other countries and we're getting worse service because we have all these fractured insurance groups fighting with the hospitals and jacking up prices of the hospitals and not even giving the, the right prices, but jacking up prices so they can negotiate later on. And if you yeah. don't have a health insurance to negotiate, you're fucked, et cetera, et cetera. And also the fact that preventative care always is cheaper. There's a graph that someone did about like how much the the cost of things have changed over time where it's like a bunch of products and services like TVs and toys and like electronic parts have gotten cheaper since like the 90s. Whereas yeah. like a, but all the health services have like skyrocketed and, and insulin itself. And yeah, housing, like yeah. all of that has gotten way more expensive. Oh, uh, t- I have another update to bring it back to the NRA. The net neutrality update, they just awarded Ajit Pai, the head of the FCC, their NRA Courage Award. Uh, <laughs> courage. Amazing. Wow. Uh, so courageous. Like, is, is that like the Medal of Honor or what? Like, I, I guess. Uh, yeah. Well, I guess they have to pay him back somehow for taking all the fucking heat for being <laughs> a piece of shit arguing for against but, net neutrality. But, <laughs> but the NRA, the, what does the NRA have to do with the internet? doesn't make any sense. I think they're, they see him and they're like, that's that poor soldier. They see him all the internet beams against him and they're like, we got to fight for our troops. And so give him our... He's a corporatist yeah. like us. But, uh, and another good example besides healthcare is also, in my opinion, campaign financing. Like, you might think, oh, we saved so much money not having to pay public elections and having social spending of, of our elections to make sure everyone who uh, can gets money towards their campaigns. You think, oh, we're saving those money, but then the corporations, for example, healthcare industry, if you have healthcare lobbyists, they're going to give us not single payer and we're going to pay more for healthcare. We're going to not get, we're going to lose social services. We're going to lose all this shit. So corporates get tax cuts while we get a tax increase, just like in the Trump tax bill. Uh, that's what happens when you give people, the people who have political influence in our in our elections are people who have money interests. They're going to try to rob our, our fucking government because they wouldn't do it if it wasn't profitable. They wouldn't give it for yeah. free. It's, why would they do it? It's, not, it's a business deal they're making with our government to pay a little now to get more later on in tax cuts, in subsidies, in uh, monopolization of industries, etc., etc. So how much did Paul Ryan get from the Koch brothers day after the tax bill? $500,000? <laughs> oh, fuck Paul Ryan. Yeah, fuck, yeah. fuck Republicans, fuck, fuck corporate Democrats, <laughs> uh, fuck us. Fuck us. <laughs> uh, majority, the vast majority of people that receive money from the NRA are Republicans, in case you didn't know. Like, in the House, in the, out of the top 100 uh, people that receive it, 95 are Republicans. And five are Democrats that are in places like Alaska and West Virginia. Oh, yeah, we also should mention uh, single-issue voters are, are part of that reason, because a lot of people are like, yeah. I like Second Amendment, so I will be Republican. Even if, like... I disagree with everything else. Yeah. You, you cannot... You cannot be against the Second Amendment at all. They even have stuff where it's like Democrats, they have ads where Democrats are shooting guns to be like, look, no, see, like, I, I do like guns. Don't worry oh, about Oh, those are so guys. sad. They're always so pathetic. Oh, yeah. so pathetic. I'm yeah. a gunman. Or, like, it's like when they attack Democrats, too, and they're like, uh, President Obama has Secret Service agents. They have guns. But he <laughs> wants to take your guns. Yeah. 
Well, now yeah. that now the NRA is making ads, he's saying, "Oh, the radical left is trying to go to war with Trump. You need to get your guns and shoot them." Kind of shit. So, mm-hmm. yeah, no, the NRA ads are like terrifying. Yeah, because because right now sales are down because Trump won. Like now they have to fight, say like even when you win, uh, Republicans, you need to get guns to kill all the liberals going after Trump. <laughs> need an eternal enemy to always yeah. fight against. Yeah, it's yeah, gonna... we've always been at war with Oceana. <laughs> it's gonna be the Jews again, guys. Uh, that's that's historical happens eventually if you have social problems eventually you find one person to blame and then bad things happen to that group it's going to be weeaboos this time <laughs> no weeaboos are going to be the ones doing it uh, anime <laughs> yeah they, they right. are that's they're true. on this, their side yeah. uh, praise kick yeah. <laughs> Trump not dubs <laughs> let's go <laughs> let's get the fuck out of here let's get the fuck out of here in conclusion fuck money uh, fuck, <laughs> no fuck but he- we need it <laughs> I hate humans. Okay, more lesson is reject corporate money. Try to uh, give to your candidates who are fighting for your interests against corporate money. That's that's almost like the the super sad, brutal cycle is because yeah. the rich keep getting richer and we're getting poor, but we have to give money in order to make a change. That's the funny thing is we are getting socialism, like, but is socialism only for? The, like the the bottom ninety percent, like we're all pooling our smaller and smaller pool of money. All the rich are are just they can spend it and put it in the Cayman Islands. They can do whatever the fuck they yeah. want. Put it. So like we're we're getting a socialism eventually, but it's going to be like us with like a hundred thousand dollars for an entire population of America or like rich everything else. I think it's just I want to just say it's important that if you have spare money that you can donate to candidates. Yeah. Even if their candidate is not in your state, like Beto O'Rourke, you know, running against Ted Cruz, that would be a great victory. That's a good donate point, if you can, yeah. and if you can't, volunteer. Mm-hmm. Even if you, you know, there's even if you're in a place like Phil said, where like the Democrats definitely going to win, you could phone bank for people. You could make phone calls. You could knock on doors if you live in an area that's like a swing district. Or, you know, you could phone bank for other for other states. So that stuff goes now more than ever. We need to show that even if you don't have money, you could still support candidates. Yeah, that's that's important because I I do think we're on the beginning of a, a swing, hopefully. Yeah, that's no matter what. I believe we're on a swing of something. We just make sure it's a good, it's a good swing. Like, a swing yeah, of alcohol. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you guys all for listening. You should rate and review and subscribe on iTunes. And you should join our Facebook group, Oops, I Talk Device of Issues, and our Discord. The link is in the show notes. We A lot of the stuff that I mentioned, like the Pie stuff and some other stuff we were talking about, actually I got from our Facebook group. So thank you, everyone who posts articles. And you should check out all the other shows of the Common Radio Network. And you should also check out our show, Divisive Issues. We just had our second year anniversary, and we talked a lot about, like, Bush-era imperialism, but kind of through the guise of a really bad book called The Ultimates. Mm -hmm. So you guys should listen to that. That's wherever this is, that is also. And, yeah, thank you guys for listening to Oops, I Talk Politics. I've been hopeful for maybe the first time in a while <laughs> i've been radical socialist ralph nader i've been a fan of milk toastization or whatever i said and i've been lobbying to get more anime into our discussions oops i had the podcast Comrade radio.com independent podcasting network